Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, This Book Changed My Life, featuring Barry Jones, Tracy Spicer and Susan Wyndham in conversation with Adam Suckling, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. So, so this session really is a session about a book that changed people's lives, and it's a session about the importance of writing in transforming individual lives and also in changing the world. So we've got three people who really don't need an introduction, but I will introduce them. To my right is Barry Jones, who's a writer, broadcaster, former lem- member for both the Victorian and Federal Parliaments, He was awarded an AC in 2014, and he was one of Australia's longest-serving science ministers. He's got a very, very long bio and would be here all afternoon if I kept reading it, so I won't. In his 2016 book, The Shock of Recognition, he wrote about the books and music that have inspired him, including the writings of Homer, Dante, Chaucer, Cervantes, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, Proust, Beckett, and many, many more. His current book is Knowledge, Courage, Leadership, Insights and Reflections. Next to Barry is Tracy Spicer, who's a television, radio and newspaper journalist who's worked in journalism for 30 years. She's reported for and anchored the National Nine Nine News, current affairs shows, including on the ABC, Network 10, Channel 9 and Sky News. Uh, I worked for a while at Foxtel and I used to see her in the coffee shop. Welcome, Tracy. Um, her book, or her, the first book she's published, is a book called "The Girl, Good Girl Stripped Bare." And then, to right at the end, is Susan Wyndham, who's a journalist and author. She's been an editor of the Good Weekend magazine, uh, New York correspondent for the Australian, and until this year, was the literary editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, her books include "Life in His Hands: The True Story of a Neurosurgeon and a Pianist." and My Mother, My Father, On Losing a Parent, and she's contributed to many, many books, including books by, uh, uh, you know, Rebellious Daughters by Marina Katsonis and Lee Kaufman, and and Unbreakable, edited by Jane Carroll. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Susan, if I I can just start with you, can you tell us what is the, the first book you remember reading and why? I don't think I can pin it down to the very first because I was an avid reader. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry, I've got a bit of a cough. But um, I was an avid, I was an early reader and an avid reader. And, of course, I had a mother who read to me from before I could read. So books were just part of my experience. But the book I'm going to pick out, um, unfortunately not Australian, but... um, just the tale of Peter Rabbit. I, <laughs> it's not an original choice, but it um, it brings back such beautiful memories to me in so many ways. You know, those I'm sure many of you know those little Beatrix Potter hardcover books that uh, are still around, and um, it, I had a lot of the Beatrix Potter books. But the tale of Peter Rabbit is such a simple story, um, you know, about a cheeky young rabbit who gets into a field to eat the vegetables and Mr McGregor, the farmer, is trying to catch him and chase him out. And Peter escapes eventually, but it's quite heart-stopping at times. You think he's going to get caught. And the brilliant thing about that book is that it's from the point of view of a rabbit. You And Mr McGregor is the villain and you're feeling all the way empathy with this little rabbit and wanting him to escape. It has Beatrix Potter's beautiful, beautiful um, illustrations, which have so much detail in in them. I think that book helped to teach me to understand the point of view of animals, maybe not even consciously. I do remember that uh, for my seventh birthday party, I got kids to contribute a dollar to the RSPCA rather than give me a present. So maybe I can thank Beatrix Potter for that. (laughs) Um, And the other... Thing that grew from that was my parents were divorced and I would go off on, for school holidays to stay with my father in Melbourne often in, in the holidays and um, 
Dad was a great storyteller and I remember going to bed every night for some time with him telling me a Peter Rabbit story, but one that he would make up. And they were so gripping. I couldn't wait to go to bed and he would... Um, Peter Rabbit and Thumper, you know, these were the characters and there was always drama. And then... And he, I, he chose those because he knew you liked I think the he story. knew I loved the story, yeah. So he probably started out by reading the book to me and then took it off in different directions. A whole lot of sequels. Yeah, exactly. A prequel to the exactly. book, the whole lot. Wow. Yeah, and, you know, it, it was a real bonding experience for me and my father, who I only saw every now and then at that stage. And then Mrs Tiggywinkle became my favourite later, um, this wonderful washerwoman whose prickles stuck out through her clothes and a little girl Lucy goes to visit her in her little cottage where she's doing the laundry and the ironing and Lucy knows she's a washerwoman but there's something strange about this little lady with her prickles through her clothes and is she a hedgehog or is she a woman and it's a wonderful mystery and I love the pots of jam on the shelf. So I'm imbued with Beatrix Potter and I don't think it matters that she's English. I think she's part of all of us in our childhood. <laughs> Fantastic, wonderful. Yeah. Tracy, what about you? Thank you for that First beautiful book. story. You took us on such a journey. <laughs> that was wonderful. Uh, where I grew up was a very working class area, so there wasn't a great focus on books or literature. My mother, however, was a preschool teacher, and so she'd always take us to the local library and we'd be able to get our books, even for a very young age. But they're not the ones I remember. The one that I remember is the very first new book that I got, the smell of a new book. Uh, and this one was Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. I absolutely love that book and I bought it for both of our kids. They're 11 and 12 when they were very young. And I love it for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, when you're little and you, ha you have a fight with your parents, you just want to run away into your old wo own world of imagination. And reading that book as a child made me, made me realise I could create any world in my bedroom. It didn't matter what was going on in the world around me, I could create my own life there. If you read it on a deeper level, again, like most children's books, it seems very simple, but there's a lot of depth to it, teaches children how to deal with anger because Max goes off into this world with monsters and a jungle, but he's back in time for his hot supper. His dinner is still hot. Yeah. So it teaches children that, yes, you can have a fight or an argument with your parents, but, you know, you deal with it in your own way and then you reconcile. So it's one of those wonderful books that's got a lot of different levels. Thank you. Barry? Well, I, I think the earliest book that really had an influence on me was a book called The Home of Mankind <laughs> by, by Hendrik Willem van Loon. And van Loon was, well, van Loon actually is the way they pronounced it, born in the Netherlands but wrote in the United States. And he had an extraordinary appeal, and I think I read this first when I was five or six, and I've read it many times since. <laughs> but he makes a number of very profound points. What happened with Van Loan's books, which were great bestsellers in their time, that he had these very powerful cartoons illustrated. They're like cartoons, but really very, very dramatic. And he makes two or three points right at the beginning. Uh, one is that um, he makes the observation that humans, Homo sapiens, Humans are the only species that kill each other. The tigers don't kill tigers. Hyenas don't kill hyenas. But humans kill humans, often in a very systematic kind of way. He also, when he's talking about the fragility of the, the human race, he makes the point, and you can work out the mathematics for yourself, it sounds implausible, <laughs> but if you, uh, if you had, could imagine a, uh, a, a cube which was one mile in the old money, but, you know, 1.6 uh, kilometres uh, in each dimension, you could fit the entire population of the world inside it. And if you put, somehow, you hauled it up to the top of a mountain and then went, push, then the whole species would disappear. So that the result is we've got that very dramatic sense mm. of the fragility that we're on the edge. And then at the very end, see something that I've never forgotten, where he's talking about the fragility of the world. He's writing in the 1930s, I may say, but he's writing about the world in the 1930s, and he imagines a world where, in fact, 
we have depleted resources to such extent by overmining, overproducing, and the population of the world was much less then, that you have a world which is, uh, which is uh, absolutely seriously depleted and you have catastrophic change. But he then goes on and talks about the things that we don't know. And this is a sentence that stuck in my mind for 70 years, or no, nearly 80 years, where he says all the things we don't know. He says, the manhunt with horses and dogs organised to exterminate the Aborigines of Australia are rarely mentioned in the histories devoted to the early years of that distant continent. Why go on? I'm merely repeating what everybody knows. Well, not everybody knew in Australia in the 1930s. I mean, we now know far more than we did then, but we didn't know that. And so the result is what I got out of that book and still get is that sense of our interdependence, of the fragility of the human situation, of terrible things that happen if we suppress and deny our past and we've got to face up to the truth unbendingly, and that's something that's stayed with me, I think. Wow. So it really is, a, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, not the first book I would have read, a picture, <laughs> I think mine was a picture book, but, but Barry, it really has stayed with you. It's something that, as you're saying, opened your mind to, you know, the whole world yep. in all of its complexity and fragility. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> all right, well, we now move on to the meat of it, which is the question of, well, the two big questions. One is, uh, what is a book that has changed you individually profoundly? I thought I would just get to answer the questions, but or ask the questions, but in the green room, Susan said to me, well, you have to nominate two books. You can't just ask us. So here goes, just off the top of my head, the two books I think that have profoundly influenced me are one, What Contentious Early Diaries of Sydney. Uh, he was a British officer who wrote about First Contact, which kind of led me on a journey of reading about it, and it profoundly changed my view of the city in which I lived. And the second one is Jamie's 30-Minute Meals. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. I wanted to get something more profound than that, but that's what came to me. And, and the reason for that is I was sort of going through a period where the kids were getting spaghetti bolognese every night, and my wife gave me the, that book. There's no way you can cook the meals in 30 minutes, but anyway... Um, but it really opened up my mind uh, to cooking and to cooking much more inventively for the children. And it made me think that if you don't show kids the possibility of a complex, broad, expanding universe on the, din the dinner table, you probably narrow them. Um, so that's my answer. So we'll go in the same order. Susan, why don't you talk about the book that's in Well, Adam's you. given us two books, but he told us we could only have one. So there you are. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So, look, I have chosen this tiny little book, um, Honour and Other People's Children by Helen Garner. I'm a huge fan of everything Helen has written, um, and I'm sure many of you are too, but it began with this book, and it's falling apart, actually. This, uh, this was the 1982 <coughs> paperback of a book that came out in 1980, and I've written in the front Susan Wyndham, April 1984, and I'll tell you why that's significant afterwards. But um, this is two novellas. It was her second book after Monkey Grip, which made such an impact, you know, the story of com communal households in Melbourne and junkies and all the relationships that um, flowed around those people, and more than semi-autobiographical, I think, and I, I would say the same of these. Um, but... This is the first one I read, and I continue to love it more than I love Monkey Grip. Um, and I'm going to just focus on the very first of the stories, which is only 50 pages long, Honour. It's the story of um, Kathleen and Frank, who are a couple who were married and have been apart for about five years, but have never got round to getting divorced because they're kind of loose and, you know, there's no real need to divorce. We're still good friends. And... But Frank has moved on and he has a relationship now with Jenny and Jenny wants to get married and have a proper, normal, bourgeois household. And um, so Frank has asked for a divorce. And it's the story of the negotiation of the triangular, triangular relationship between these three adults and also Flo, who's the little daughter of Frank and Kathleen. 
and it's she's such a a poignant, pivotal character in the story. Um, and it's really one of those stories where nothing major happens, but it's just beautifully written. And um, I'm going to do something which I would not normally do when I'm trying to get you to read a book. I'm going to read the very ending of it because this is an ending that has stayed with me and it still gives me shivers in a quiet way. Um, look how this is, it's dropped out in this latest reading. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. But um, I'll just read you the last page and a half. Um, Jenny and Kath Kathleen, the wife, Jenny, the new girlfriend, have been circling around each other, hurting each other's feelings. Kathleen keeps getting in the way. Jenny's trying to find her place in Frank's life. And Flo is trying to keep them all polite and happy and in her life. She doesn't want to lose anyone. And they're off to the park, the two women and the child. Outside the gate, Flo galloped ahead with the dog. The two women came along slowly in the almost dark. The sky, which was indigo, had withdrawn to the heights as if to make room for a sliver of moon. Dark, dusky yellow rocked on its back like a cradle. Kathleen? I don't feel disgusted, says Jenny. Kath, when I met Frank, I knew he liked me because he kept his body turned towards me all the time, wherever I was in the room. We were in a room with some other people. I didn't know him. Frank, this is Kathleen. Frank and I had a dog once, but he got a disease. He was going to die. I carried him to the vet, wrapped up in an old blue coat. I put him on the table and they were going to give him an injection. We went walking in the botanic gardens after we left him. We were both crying. Then we saw a bird hop in a bush. Uh, Jenny, I dreamed about you and me becoming friends. I've been in Australia two years now and I haven't got a good girlfriend, Kathleen, but I was unbearable the day we moved the furniture and climbing in the window. Jenny, you were always barging onto my territory. In the park, beside the concrete wall of the, conc of the football ground, the women sat down close together on the shaven grass. There was a strong scent of gums and earth. Kathleen says, are you having a baby? Flo told me you might be. I thought I was pregnant, but not yet. I'm going to, I want to. Flo and the dog were tearing about in the thickening darkness over by the swings and slides. They saw her leap up and grab the high end of the seesaw. Hey, come over here. Jenny, Kath, come over. She was beckoning enthusiastically. They got up and picked their way barefoot off the grass and across the lumpy gravel. It's a game, said Flo. You two get on. They hesitated, glanced at each other and away again. Flo was nodding and smiling and raising her eyebrows, one hand holding the ridged wooden plank horizontal. <clears throat> they separated and walked away from each other, one to each end. They swung their legs over and placed themselves gingerly, easing their weight this way and that on the meandering board. Let go, Floss. The child stepped back. Jenny, who was nearer the ground, gave a, gave a firm shove with one foot to send the plank into motion. It responded. It rose without haste, sweetly, to the level, steadied and stopped. They hung in the dark, airily balancing, motionless. Now that, to me, is an obvious and yet a very beautiful metaphor for this unresolved relationship. And it just, I don't know, there's something about it that gets me every time I read it, and I, I just thank Helen for that. Um, Did it change you? It changed me not in a profound mm -hmm. way in that I, you know, my life took a different direction, but April 1984 when I read this book, I was a young journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. I'd been there about three years. I'd gone through a cadetship. I was a young reporter. Um, several things were happening. I read this and I thought, this is about people like me. Australian fiction was really strong in the 80s. And I thought, this can be done. And one day, I want to write like this. You know, I can't write like Helen Garner. She's remained a sort of... God, goddess of fiction and, and non-fiction to me. But I thought this is about us, this is our literature, this is possible and it's something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was happening was I realised um, that was almost the month when my first marriage started falling apart. Wow. And um, 
I was going through a really rocky time emotionally and met the man who would be my second husband not long after. Um, and I think I sort of found myself in there and all the complexity of the, motion, the emotions that you go through. Mm-hmm. So I just felt that Helen said everything I needed to know at that time and helped me through. And I've interviewed her many times. I know Helen reasonably well. And she just keeps moving ahead with her writing. She's now gone to journalism and non-fiction and, you know, writes about these extraordinary crimes and court cases. Mm. And I just think she's extraordinary and one of the most honest, emotionally honest, powerful writers we have. So I hold her up there and she's been like a guiding star Mm. in my life. Beautiful. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Tracy, a, a book that changed your the book that changed your life. Yes, Helen Garner's piece in the Monthly was absolutely oh, outstanding. Yeah. Aside from Helen, one of my favourite Australian authors is Kate Grenville, mm. and I saw her in the bar here last night, and I went up and said, Kate. The Secret River is my favourite book. Thank you so much for writing it. She said, thank you, but my name's Deborah. (laughs) So if there's a woman in the crowd here who is called Deborah and who may or may not look a little bit like Kate Grenville, I apologise profusely. I'm very embarrassed. Um, Barry said something before that touches on why I like The Secret River so much and I, I actually scrawled it down. He said, terrible things happen if you suppress and deny your past. Kate Grenville wrote The Secret River after participating in a reconciliation march in 2008. And what I loved about reading it was it opened my eyes, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I'm a journalist, I'd covered a lot of stories about Invasion Day and what we'd done to our Indigenous peoples, but because I was of an era that we never learnt that at school. I felt there were so many gaps in my knowledge that were missing because of that. So when I read Kate Grenville's book, The Secret River, it was such simple storytelling about two people, William Thornhill, who was the convict, who was based upon one of her forebears, and the Indigenous people of the land. And what can only be described as a tragedy of mutual incomprehension. I'll just read you a passage and then dig down a little bit more on it. There were no signs that the blacks felt that the place belonged to them. They had no fences that said, this is mine. No house that said, this is our home. There were no fields or flocks that said, we have put the labour of our hands into this place. And I think that one short passage represents the abyss separating all of our, you know, Western and at that time British concept of land ownership and the Indigenous people being at one with the land, being the land and not having that concept of ownership, sharing everything within the community and the tragedy of mutual incomprehension and where that went. Uh, I think it was life-changing for a couple of reasons. One was it was such simple storytelling told of a complex issue told through a few characters and it was a real light bulb moment for me in my understanding of Australia's history. But I think it was a moment of understanding for a lot of Australians, particularly when the play was then made. You saw the play, Susan. Was it very um, authentic to the book? It was quite different. Have people here seen the play that was based on this novel? It, It, well, just... Briefly, it really put the uh, the point of view of the Indigenous people up front and used the, the Darug language, I think it is. They got them speaking in their own language, uh, whereas Kate had not presumed to write from that point mm. of view. They were sort of shadowy figures in the background more often. Um, but I think the two complement each other really beautifully, quite different, very simple set, uh, really powerful stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I love the book too. Yes, so that's the book that changed my life. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Barry? Well, I I don't appear to be too sort of universal, but um, the uh, I, I've got an, an insatiable hunger for big stuff, for big stuff. And I'd say that a book that I've constantly reread that's been a profound influence has been uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. And the extraordinary thing with it, you know, I was trying to find a nice quotation that I could read a few, just a few sentences. And the difficulty was that 
really reading Tolstoy, it's a bit like reading a film script mm. because it's so extraordinary. It's not as if you can, if you pick a single section out, say, hey, hang on, what about over here or over there or over there? Mm. And it's all, it's so fantastic, the, the breadth uh, of it all. And uh, I, I'll read just a sentence or two, which actually other people have, have written about Tolstoy. But Tolstoy really made me redefine myself. I don't sound too pretentious, but I can see that if there's anyone in literature that I'm sort of like, it's it's Pierre Bazukov. And Pierre's really a kind of an anti-hero. I mean, he's not the hero in the sense that Andre, Prince Andre is, but because he's constantly constantly trying to find the truth about something and then he finds himself going into a blind alley and said no no, no I've, I've got to st I've got to get moving in another kind of direction mm -hmm. and the result is that um, and there's this absolutely extraordinary scene where he he uh, after the Russian invasion after, after the French invasion by Napoleon he he's part of a kind of mad scheme that he thinks it might be a good idea to try and go and assassinate Napoleon. And in fact, he's arrested. And then he's taken out. And then one of the most extraordinary scenes in the whole book, uh, the French soldiers start to execute these these young Russians. And in the case of Pierre, because he's number six in the line, he, uh, uh, he'd be waiting to be executed. And I just want to read something James Wood wrote in a New Yorker piece, which is wonderful, where he says... He undergoes, Pierre undergoes a colossal moral correction, brought in by witness, witnessing the execution of his fellow captives. Pierre watches as four men are shot by the French. Now it's the turn of the fifth, a factory worker, a thin boy of 18. Pierre will be next. The factory worker is blindfolded, but just before he's killed, he straightens the knot at the back of his head to make it more comfortable. Now, that's a typical Tolstoy point. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to die mm -hmm. in 20 seconds, but it's an instinctive yes. human reaction, yeah. you see, which is counterintuitive. And uh, he straightened... It's a superb scene. Every detail charged is lit by lightning. The pale, frightened faces of the French executioners, the young French soldier who stands by the pit where the bodies are being buried, swaying back and forth like a drunkard. And as he said, Tolstoy is doubtless interested in the nature of the action. Is the condemned man exercising the sweetest, sweetest gratuity of his free will or helplessly responding to the discontent of the knot? Either way, the absolute selfishness in the most basic sense of another man must be instructive to the self-sufficient Pierre. After his experiences... His sense of the differences of other people begins to expand. The factory worker adjusts his blindfold and dies. Pierre, figuratively speaking, adjusts his blindfold and lives. Mm. And you mm. see this absolute, this extraordinary understanding of the human condition. And I just wanted to quote something, which I um, uh, that uh, an exchange between uh, Tolstoy and and Chekhov that. Uh, Chekhov had gone to visit Tolstoy in his estate at Yasnaya Polyana, Bright Glade, Yasnaya Polyana, when they encountered a horse in the woods. Tolstoy started talking about the horse, graphically imagining what the animal would think about, the clouds overhead, the umbrageous trees, the smell of the wet earth, the flowers, the sun. Chekhov, astonished, exclaimed that Tolstoy must have been a horse in an earlier life, because only a horse could know so completely what a horse would feel. <laughs> Tolstoy responded, no, but the day I came across my own inside, I came across everyone's inside. Oh, isn't that fabulous? Wow, wow. Isn't that, isn't that absolutely fabulous? The, 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 so it's, it's, it's big stuff. You know, time's running out. <laughs> and uh, 
And so, uh, so, Bowie, deeply profound, big stuff. How did it influence you? I mean, what, what were you doing at that time when you read that book, War and Peace first? How, I, how have you taken it I became it more preoccupied, obsessed even, with the human condition. Mm -hmm. And to say, how can you help people to get out of Plato's cave? How can you get them out to express what, what are human beings capable of? And we don't know. And you get a similar kind of situation, really, uh, with, with uh, say, uh, with Homer's Iliad, mm -hmm. the inexorability of fate. To what extent there are certain things you can never avoid, but you're looking for different, for example, different types of leadership, for example. How do you deal with the human condition? How do you respond to fate? It's big stuff, mm -hmm. and it's challenging. Mm -hmm. Barry, can I just ask if you also love Anna Karenina, which oh, yeah. I would count as one of my favourite yeah. books in the world. It's, oh. it's very different, but... It's absolutely extraordinary. And one of the, one of the great passages... Well, there are two. There are two absolutely yeah, wonderful right. passages at the, end of, uh, <laughs> at the end of Anna, which, which I think of. One is, one is when Anna is going to, fatally to the railway station where, where she... She commits suicide. But where you've got this stream of consciousness where as she's going along in her carriage, she's reading advertising slogans. Oh, she's yeah. reading all these strange things which are absolutely immediate but also irrelevant. Also mm. irrelevant. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And the other thing, I, uh, which is very much in my mind, the very end of the book, people, because of the film, they think the thing ends with Anna's death. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, no. it, it ends with it ends with with um, uh, with with uh, the extraordinary scene uh, at the end where where uh, where Kitty and Levin, Levin yeah. Kitty and Levin get married, and it's a scene actually makes you think of the situation with Rachel and me a bit uh, that uh, that uh, towards the end you see that towards the end. Uh, 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 Levin is going and has got a kind of epiphany and he's saying he understands the way in which the universe works. He understands how the, uh, uh, you know, how, how the planets move, mm -hmm. how, the whole, how the whole universe operates. And, uh, and, and Kitty says to him, yes, well, that's, that's all very interesting, but she said, I wonder if you could go into the bathroom. I think the tap is leaking. <laughs> Do you want to expand on the Rachel and me comment further, or is that sufficient? <laughs> um, what about, I mean, you were in, in, in politics a long time. Do you think that all... Too long. You, Too did, long. Did, did your voracious, extraordinary amount of reading, including of, of those two books, did it help? Did it hinder? It hindered. I mean, I, it was, it was really... Uh, um, I mean, I'd, I'd have had more fun if I'd been there in the Whitlam uh, um, period, because... Uh, we could have we could have entertained each other and bored everyone else with us. So. <laughs> well, listen, I, we we you know we could go all afternoon on that one digression, but we, we need to stick a little bit to script. So that, that, look, the next question I want to ask: This was a session about the power of writing in books to change people, but also to change the world. So I'd ask each of the panellists to think about what is a book, it's a very unfair question really, but what is a book that has had a profound impact on the world? Um, Susan is going, has told me what she's going to say, but I won't steal her thunder, so Susan, what, what's a book that you think has changed the world? Well, again, a, a book that I'm sure many, if not most of you, have read, George Orwell's 1984, written, published in 1949, when the world was coming out of war and um, fascism and socialism and all those extremisms that um, Orwell observed. And, it, I mean, I'm not a particular fan of futuristic writing and it was still supposedly the future when I um, read it in the 70s, I think I would have first read 1984, so it was still projecting forward a little bit. Um, but... It was. It, it, he creates such a real world in there, doesn't he? I. Um, um, I mean, I'm a great fan of all Orwell's writing. I think he was a great journalist, and I just could read him endlessly. I think he's still so fresh. But 
Um, of course, 1984 was the story of Winston, who was working in the Department of Truth under this unspecified um, totalitarian regime. And, uh, you know, 1984 has given us so many words, you know, the thought police and um, newspeak and doublespeak and, you know, words that we use all the time and that continue to be applicable in every era of our living history and I think at this moment <laughs> probably are as relevant as they have ever been. Um, the sinister mm -hmm. big brother of government that observes our lives and controls us in increasingly uh, frightening and, and new ways. And um, so I think it, it, I'm not sure if it has restrained the world in any way, but I think it continues to keep us aware of the dangers of any sort of um, unfettered government, whether it be from the left or the right. I think that was the clever thing about Orwell. He, he had his own strong politics, but I think he made us um, fearful of the extremes at, of any, uh, you know, any end of the spectrum. And um, So you, know, you think th in a kind of world of fake news and Trump and... Yes, a, I wasn't a, going to say all well, that, but I just absolutely. Sort of go there, I'm sure it's on someone else's <laughs> it's mind. So, you know, it's obvious to us, I yeah. think, that that is relevant to us today. So I think that's a book that will continue to be relevant way into the future. Tracy? We think alike. I was going to say Aldous Huxley's Brave yeah. New World because we've seen generations sedated by Soma. You know, yeah. these kind of things continue for a long time. But the book I've chosen is Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch because she's an Australian who made her mark on the world stage by being at the forefront of second wave feminism. And as uh, a feminist today, whether you call it the third or the fourth wave, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. When you read that book, and I reread it recently, it's just an absolutely brilliant work. And sometimes we forget about how important it was that women finally had control of their reproductive systems, whether that was through the pill or through abortion. I still talk to a lot of young women these days who feel a lot of shame about their sexuality, about embracing their sexual agency. And if it wasn't for people like Germaine Greer, we wouldn't even be able to have these conversations publicly. So I choose the female eunuch. Barry. Well, of course, being completely lacking in imagination, I took your uh, your question far too literally. I mean, there's, <laughs> I'm sorry. there's, uh, there's no uh, question. I think that the book, the pivotal book with the greatest impact, has been the Koran. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. I mean, it eclipses the uh, the Bible. You've got to say simply because uh, the impact has been so profound and continuing, and one might say, growing. You mightn't like the outcome involved in it, but I don't think it's, it's unquestionably been the most... Because it's not only really covers religion in the narrow sense, the sense of revelation, and not saying this is about God, they're saying this is dictated by God. Mm -hmm. This is God's word, absolutely. Not mediated through, you know, the, the, uh, the, the apostles or, you know, the Joe or various other writers. So... Uh, that its impact on politics, its impact on economics, its impact on war and peace. The impact is so profound. Historically, there's no, I think there's no question, there's no book that comes within, mm -hmm. that comes close. Other, the, the Bible would come next, but uh, the Koran's a long way ahead in terms of impact. And are they those biblical texts? Is it a huge question, a, a positive impact, a negative impact, both highly complex? Depends on who you're talking to. I mean, the the, I mean, going back to what what was said about about brave new world. It's the sense of saying if you've got somebody who says I have an absolute conviction that this is the only way, and that mm -hmm. you have to conform to that only way. I mean, um, mm. of course, Orwell wasn't writing specifically about the uh, the, the world of Islam or or the uh, you know the world shaped by the Quran, but it's implicit in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Now, in the green room, we were talking about books and the impact of books on politicians and ensuring or hoping that politicians will govern better. Barry talked about a book he'd recommended to 
John Howard before he was Prime Minister, so I'm going to ask him what that book was. And then, you know, we live in complex times. A lot of people say that the country's increasingly difficult to govern. So I'm also going to ask each panellist, what is a book you'd recommend that the Prime Minister read? <laughs> Barry, you go first. Well, I, I did, in fact, say it to uh, John Howard. I, I gave him a copy of War and Peace, and he looked puzzled. And he said, why are you giving it to me? And I said, well, I think there's a very strong chance you'll become Prime Minister. And I think, you know, if you had read the book, you'd be a, a better Prime Minister than you would if you hadn't. And I often think, my God, I don't know where we'd be now if he hadn't read it. And <laughs> he, um, he, uh, but he, whenever we meet, which is all that occasionally read in the Chairman's Lounge, but he always remembers the story and he says he did actually read it. Mm. I'm not sure, he didn't say he enjoyed it, but he said he, he certainly said he read it. Right. Well, what, what about our current Prime Minister? Well, he's quite widely read, but I would urge him to reread um, <laughs> Kafka's book, The Trial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and why, Barry? Ah, because here you have nameless accusers, nameless processes, uh, everything that's operating in a world that's outside the law, where people don't take accountability. They say, well, you know, we're, we're being cruel to be kind, it's the only way we can operate and we have no alternative, and so on. And that seems to me to be absolutely the kind of point, the kind of situation that Kafka writes about so, so powerfully. It is an astounding book. I mean, if, if I had the liberty of suggesting another book, it would be, uh, it would be um, uh, Montaigne's essays. I mean, big stuff again. Montaigne's essays, in particular, in particular, the last essay, I think the greatest of all, the essay called On Experience, which is mm -hmm. just one of the great, one of the transcendent masterpieces and so on. And what it's going through at all is the need to have courage to establish beliefs, get them right, check them out, and act on them, but act courageously. My, my guess is that Turnbull might actually have read Montaigne. He's quite well read. Oh, no, I, I conceded that. I said yeah. he was. Well, I yeah. And in fact, the words I used about Kafka say, read them again. Okay, well, okay. I'll use that say All again. Right. He okay. ought to read them. I may be wrong. I'm only guessing, but yeah. So, so this is a question without notice. Sorry, Barry, but what about um, President Trump? Would you... <laughs> it's... Uh, Trump, President Trump has conceded he doesn't read whole books. Mm -hmm. He said he's read chapters of books. Yeah. Twitter and versions. And he's conceded that even the books published under his own name, he hasn't read from, <laughs> he hasn't read from cover to cover. And that, that is pretty clear. Uh, David Remnick <laughs> said one of the White House staffers told, told him that, that uh, uh, President Trump had the attention span of a hummingbird. Mm. <laughs> so hard. I don't think you, yeah. I, he certainly won't be reading War and Peace. Yeah. <laughs> you should send in the tweet version. No. Tracy. I think Malcolm Turnbull needs to reread John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Because I can see clear parallels between the displaced people who were forced off their lands, heading west to California yeah. with the hope of a new life, and yet. At the end, they're abandoned. They're abandoned by the government. They're abandoned by big business. And we can see the same thing with the displaced people moving globally and ending up in offshore detention centres in Australia and in just awful, bloody, effectively prisons around the world. It's just we've lost our compassion. When I read that book, that really lit a fire in my belly about social justice. And I think someone like Malcolm Turnbull has lost that compassion and needs to be reminded of the kind of people that need our help at the moment. Mm -hmm. Susan. Well, I'm, I thought I might fudge the answer slightly in that I would recommend all politicians, all leaders, read fiction because uh, of any kind. Pick up a novel because... Um, 
there have been studies that show that people who read fiction have greater empathy for people unlike themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know if the scientific proof is true, but I think we can all uh, recognise that experience of disappearing into the story of someone unlike ourselves. And, of course, non-fiction can bring us that too. But I think there's something about the internal life that a, that a novel can create so well. Um, and I would like to suggest that both Malcolm Turnbull and Donald Trump read some fiction by women. And perhaps Ooh. I would suggest to both of them that, because I'm sure neither of them would naturally be drawn to reading anything by a woman, <laughs> and I would therefore pick a pair of books that I think are very topical at the moment. One of them is uh, Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, oh, yes, 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 which yes, has yes. been on television Absolutely, and yes. which, of course, uh, was written, I think, in the 80s. Was it the yeah. 80s? Yeah. Say, I and, think so. yeah. And um, has been turned into this terrific television series and um, is about women being kind of turned into slaves to where their reproductive rights are controlled and they become breeding machines and have no independence whatsoever. And paired with that, I would suggest uh, Charlotte, the Australian equivalent, Char <laughs> excuse me, Charlotte Wood's more recent novel a couple of years ago, The Natural Way of Things, which people either love or hate. It's a really powerful little sort of fable about a group of women who are um, taken away, imprisoned on a remote property, and they all have some sort of... Um, they have all been sexually um, either assaulted or discriminated against in some way and they are the ones being punished because it's too embarrassing to society <laughs> or they can't... The, the women have to be removed um, because they are the powerless ones. And it's about the life of these women among uh, in this group um, in remote life and how they survive in different ways. It's an extraordinary little book. I adored it. Mm. And I just think that um, our male leaders need to understand how women suffer, how women feel fearful, how women are discriminated against in ways that they probably don't even realise. Probably Americans politicians need to see this even more than Australians at the moment. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're my okay. two. Thank you. <laughs> so, before we go to questions, I'll ask one final uh, question, which is it's not on... I, I didn't tell you about it. It's not a trick question, though. Um, I, I read recently a piece in the Washington Post by a, a commentator called Philip Yancey, who said he was an avid three-book-a-week reader, uh, but he's not anymore. The internet has taken him over and he finds himself more interested in headlines like 30 Amish facts that'll make your skin crawl. <laughs> <laughs> Top 10 celebratory wardrobe malfunctions. <laughs> Walmart, Walmart, captures camera, uh, cap, Walmart cameras captured these hilarious photos. So as, as, as great readers and at a literary festival and when we're in the midst of this digital transformation, what do you think... Are you optimistic about the future of reading, proper immersive reading, or are you pessimistic? Well, a few years ago, I, I um, chaired the, the, uh, uh, the book industry strategy group for the, for the former, uh, former Labor government. And uh, at that stage, we were looking at what was happening to the book trade, and things seemed to be... Uh, on, on the uh, sort of gentle decline, and we were concerned there might be a dramatic decline. But I think the general view around the trade is that things have improved since 2011, that in, there's some sign of a bit of a reaction against uh, relying on the digitised book, and that people um, really, that bookshops are coming into their own. In fact, you've got the revival of bookshops and the expansion of bookshops and the creation of new bookshops in a very encouraging kind of way. And um, I don't want to be too uh, uh, Pollyanna-ish, but I, uh, or, or it's male equivalent, I hasten to add. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, I'm a bit more optimistic than I was back in 2011. Great. Tracy? I agree entirely. We're seeing the, gro the growth of 
long-form journalism, more overseas than here. I know we've got the wonderful monthly and the Saturday paper here, but internationally we're seeing people returning to long-form because they're frustrated with this snacky approach to information and news. Yeah. Uh, Women of Letters, which has been going for many years now, has helped us see a return to letter writing as well. I have great hope, particularly in the young generation, that they are seeing books and letter writing as something fun and retro to do, and that's why I think we're seeing a revival around the world. Well, look at all these people here. I mean, what better sign could you have that people care about reading and the whole festival? Um, well, look, my reading this morning, I started by posting some pictures of the beach on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I read a thing about celebrities' ugly feet. <laughs> and then I turned to a beautiful book of short stories by Tara June Winch, an Indigenous Australian writer, which are just... You know, they put the other things in the shade. Mm -hmm. You know, books have it. Um, I think the thing I'm not reading so much is newspapers. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, look, I think that our reading has changed, expanded, fractured. I think we're all finding it difficult to make time to read everything that we want to. I know that my attention span is not as good as it used to be, and that worries me, and I think... Probably a lot of us are suffering from that and young people must be feeling it more than ever because they just live in it and read in a different way. But I... Um, Barry, I think you're right about bookshops having a bit of a return. I think they're struggling. I think Australian publishers are having a hard time. Yeah. I think we all have to go out and buy one more book before we leave this place. Um, but I think there... There... <laughs> But I'm just, I'm just reading a whole lot of Australian books for an award that I'm judging at the moment. I'm so inspired by the quality of Australian writing. I'm, mm. I'm reading fiction, but I've also read some fantastic Australian non-fiction. I won't name anything because I can't reveal my biases at the moment. But I, I think the quality of Australian mm. literature mm. and world literature is as good as it's ever been. And the variety is amazing. So I have a great right. optimism. Okay, look, I think we're close to time. Can I reiterate, there is this wonderful stand, the book that changed my life, that you can go to. And uh, if you haven't felt you've had an opportunity to talk here or ask a question, you can go and record for Prosperity a book that changed your life. It's part of this campaign to convince politicians that books are important and that what underwrites books and the production of them, namely a copyright system, is also important to preserve. So if, if people feel the urge to do that, don't be shy, please do it. Can I thank you all for coming, and I can I thank our panellists, Barry Jones, Tracy Spicer, and Susan Winder. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.